So part two, I was intended just to do one message leading up through the plagues to the 10th plague, which I will focus in on soon on the Passover and what that means and the power of that symbolism of the blood of the lamb. And I'll hint at that today. Uh, But just feeling the longer announcement last week and looking at the weight of that, I tried to splice it up kind of on the fly. And it felt like I was taking a birthday cake. Happy birthday to Catherine tomorrow, by the way. I was taking a birthday cake and slicing it in half and then trying to make two cakes that looked like they were originally meant to be two cakes. And so I think, you know, one side said hap seven birth mo. And you can see what the other half would have said, if you're tracking with me. Uh, Probably just a swirl design that would make Jackson Pollock proud. And now I'm presenting these two cakes to you as if they were always intended to be two cakes. And some of you are now like, what am I getting into? Believe it or not, we can learn a lot from the plague narrative about, about God, about the hardness of hearts, about the seriousness and consequence of, of sin, of hardening heart against God, and what that, what that means at a corporate or national level as well as an individual, and maybe above all, rightfully, the hope of salvation, the hope of deliverance, of justice, of freedom. So I want to consider these 10 plagues as we began last week at a 10,000-foot level from that perspective and vantage point. Maybe we don't often read this story like that, and maybe it will be helpful for us. As I mentioned last week, clearly these plagues are written in a, in a stylistic way, in a, they're arranged in a literal way that would make us take notice of what the author and later the editors of this whole story meant to get across. And while this goes beyond the scope of, of teaching today and more of a classroom setting, they are in three groups of three, followed by a tenth and ultimate plague. That's often how ancient writers would, would write. And those three groups mirror at times and parallel each other. So that plague one, plague four, and plague seven have a lot in common in the narrative. And then two, five, eight, and three, six, nine. And I'll leave that to you if that's if that strikes any interest to read it that way and look for or probably search online or pick up a Bible commentary and see some charts about, it just reveals that like what we've seen throughout this story that the author, the original author and later the editors, which none of that means that this story is not inspired and many would take it even as, as, as taking Moses' written account and making it reveal theologically more powerful themes for God's people. That was the intent of the story. So it doesn't, it doesn't mean that these plagues didn't happen historically, that something didn't miraculously take place or that God entered in, or even to some degree, it, it, exactly in the order that they happened. But it's more important for the authors of the story to get across these themes than it is for the historical accuracy. That's not how they wrote the story. That wasn't their first aim, And we've said that many times throughout the story. For some of us, that's a new way of reading an ancient story. Well, it may, we we don't need this story to be 100% historically accurate by detail to be 100% true theologically. 
And that, even just that statement alone may invite some of us to wrestle and to, to have good conversations that many have been having for hundreds of years, but maybe not in some of the traditions that we grew up in. I believe this actually reveals so much more beauty and power through the scriptures and through the story as we enter and engage with it. A couple high-level things that we can see clearly from just, from just first read. If you knew none of that, we see the plagues increase in severity from disruption and annoyance, frustration, obviously worse for some, depending on how you read the plagues, to complete destruction, devastation, and even death, right? We see this progression in extreme extreme pain, extreme loss, extreme suffering that grows over the course of what we read. We don't know the timestamps, but seems to be weeks or months as a progression. That's kind of how it reads. For it to be years would be strange, but I, I suppose it could be. For it to be days is not enough. Uh, and again, the literary detail, it doesn't matter. But it is a progression, and it is over a length of time. We see that. Also, at high level, we see a systematic Flexing of God's muscles, so to speak. He is the sovereign, the one true God over all, over all of creation and over and against any earthly spiritualities or deities, the sorcerers, the magicians, any earthly powers. God is the one true God over them all. And that becomes a systematic revelation throughout this story. I'll highlight a few in just a moment. But we see over creation from the waters to the land, to the air, the heavens above, to the earth below, and every creature that moves and hops and flies upon it. God is sovereign over them all. And that is a systematic revelation through the way the story is told. Against the powers at play, the this was a polytheistic culture in Egypt. They believed in many gods over many different things. Even Pharaoh, the, the one that would be raised up to lead the people, was said to be like a god or blessed by the gods and maybe even have some sense of, of supernatural power within him. That was an ancient belief. God, Yahweh, the I am, is bringing all of these powers to their knees, ultimately, one by one. We see at the very beginning, probably not a plague, but the first sign, the demonstration of Aaron's staff thrown to the ground that becomes a snake. And the magicians in Pharaoh's court do the same thing. They throw their staffs to the ground. And what happens? Aaron's staff swallows them all up. So power is at play, but God's power is at work and is, is over them all. We see the first plague, the waters the source of life and prosperity for Egypt turned to blood. Ironic, but probably an intentional judgment against the previous Pharaoh who had the Israelite babies thrown into the Nile for death. Here's now a sign that death is coming back to Egypt and back to Pharaoh, that ultimately their source of life and prosperity is not under their control. It's fitting that water bookends the story from the blood to then the parting of the sea, which ultimately leads to death. Interestingly, this word, there's a word in Hebrew, bahla, 
that shows up twice in this story. Once, when the snake swallows, the staff that turns snake swallows up, it bahla, the other staffs, the other snakes. That word shows up one more time at the end of this story when the waters bahla, the Egyptian army. There's literary style and words that we miss just even in our English translation that the authors were intentionally putting together, which gives emphasis to the previous uh, point of how this story was written and what it proclaims. The plague of the frogs as a direct, a direct affront to another Egyptian deity, the god Heket, the goddess of fertility and of childbirth and of new life, was depicted in their, in their graphic art with a frog's head. So the plague of the frogs is likely an indication that God is sovereign over, over these animals and maybe even another ironic jab at the death to the children that Pharaoh had put in place. God is bringing that back to them. Likewise, the plague of the boils, when Moses takes the soot from the brick kiln and tosses it in the air, and that's what leads to the painful boils upon God's people, upon the Egyptian people. There's a clear demonstration that this sign of oppression, the, the brick kiln that put that weight of, of abuse and oppression upon God's people is now coming back to bring pain upon the Egyptians who oppressed. We see this, this kind of, of systematic God's authority over, over Pharaoh, over the powers of, of the land, and over the deities that they believed in, kind of one after the other. Ironically, the, the magicians, the sorcerers who can reproduce some of the plagues somehow, whether by supernatural insight or by sleight of hand, we're not really sure what took place, it, they can do nothing to stop them which I think is a, is, a, is a powerful revelation that God alone is the one who stops plagues, who ends pain, who ends suffering. In fact, his character may be more seen clearly in his stopping of these plagues than in his bringing them or being over them, sovereign over them in the first place. Ironically, in that same, this is chapter nine, uh, in that story of the, of, the, of the plague of the soot that led to the boils, the, the sorcerers not only can't end the plague, can't reproduce it, they can't even stand in the presence of Moses and Aaron because of the boils. They are literally brought to their knees before these representatives of Yahweh. So we see this progression throughout of God, like I said, maybe flexing his muscles, so to speak. The plague of the darkness not only a clear reversal of creation for God's first work was to bring light into the darkness and now darkness is coming. This may be the, mo the most direct affront to the Egyptian deity Ra or Re, one of their highest uh, deities over the sun and light and sky, really a source of life, right? God is saying, even, even this God has no authority. I can bring darkness over the whole land while light still shined amongst God's people in Goshen. A pretty evident sign of God's control, sovereignty, and power. One, oh, and we can see more. We'll pause there. One overarching theme that we must see kind of throughout this narrative, God did not need to deliver his people this way. Really, there's an infinite number of ways God could have delivered his people. So it means that this was an intentional working through Moses and Aaron, 
Many have said, would it not have been much more merciful for God to simply see this evil ruler and strike him down than for, to allow this prolonged pain and suffering and these plagues to come? And I think rightfully, the retort is, there's just another Pharaoh waiting in the wings to rise up into that vacant position of power and continue the systematic oppression of lesser peoples. It's what's always happened. God was doing something that would stand the test of time for generations would be told. Here we are 3,000 years later, a small group of us, but nonetheless gathering to interact with this story and wonder what it could possibly mean for our todays and tomorrows. And it does have influence and power and authority for us even today. This is what God is doing that we would remember. This becomes a recurring theme in this story in Exodus chapter 10, verse 2, kind of on the conclusion of these plagues. Here's what God says, that you may, here's why, this is an answer to the why, that you may tell your children and your grandchildren how I dealt with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am Yahweh. This is a why, and we'll see it also repeated at the time of the Passover. One of the primary calls to God's people is do this in remembrance. Never forget, every year, celebrate, remember, eat together, have the Passover meal, remember the blood, remember the cost, remember the deliverance. Tell your children and their children and their children. Pass it on for generation to generation. This becomes a why to those that say, how could God allow this kind of pain and suffering to anyone? What seems to be many innocent people it's not an easy answer. It's something to continue to wrestle with, but it is a perspective I think we need to hold. God will not allow injustice and oppression to reign forever. Overarching, we see that as truth through the reality of these plagues. The Apostle Peter would say in 2 Peter 3, 8, do not forget, remember, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. When we wrestle with God's timing and what he's doing in our lives or within the world or across history, this is the Apostle Peter's answer to that question. Don't forget who our God is. Time isn't anything to him. A day, a thousand years, a thousand years, a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Yeah, Peter, uh, if you knew that Jesus hadn't returned in 2,000 years, would you still have written these words? He's writing to a people that are saying and asking, Jesus said he was coming back again to rule and to reign. Where is he within that same generation? And he's writing this as an answer. Hey, don't forget, God's timing's not ours. A day, a thousand years, a thousand years a day. He's not slow as, as you, some understand slowness. Maybe he's even personally wrestling. Would he? He'd be surprised, I think, to come to know these words still have meaning and power for us today 2,000 years later. He is patient with you. Here's his answer. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. We've got to hang that truth, that promise, that hope upon a story like this one. Why? Why would God wait so long and, and, and perform these signs relentlessly? In some way, this character of God, that he is patient with all peoples, his creation, 
that all would come to repentance and come to a knowledge of him. That's his hope. Even in this, there is actual mercy and opportunity extended to Pharaoh, to Egypt, to all, to see the power and the authority of the one true God and to have softened hearts, repentant hearts, confession hearts that say, I was wrong in the way I assumed the world was and I'm turning to this God now, this power, this authority. As important as that is to remember, it's still not likely the primary reason for these 10 plagues. They teach us like so much of scripture, not just what happened, but kind of what always happens. In this, they are allegorical theological history. This is like a microcosm that we see at play, which what reads to be over the course of weeks or months, we could say essentially happens cosmically across history. One of the primary themes that we've seen in this story already is that it is a continuation of part one. Part one found in Genesis, the first book in the First Testament. This is part two. It's not a new story. In some ways, all of the rest of scriptures, Hebrew and Greek scriptures, are the continuation of the first story, of the, the, the pinnacle picture of God's creation, of his intention for humanity and for his world. A perfect Eden where God dwells with his creation in unity, in harmony, inviting his creation, his humanity to rule with him as he does, to subdue the earth, to bring forth abundance and multiplication, to be creative. Name the animals, Adam, first command. I invite you into the process. And all that that picture represents, don't have time to go into it, I've, much of my preaching is to tell this story. This is a continuation of that story. What happens when men and women turn from God following the lies of the adversary, the enemy, the serpent, whatever you want to name, the devil, whatever you want to name him. The desire of our own flesh, our own eyes of what looks better. Questioning, can we really trust God? What happens when we turn from him, eat the fruit of the world that God said, not good for you. Don't take any. I will give you everything you need. In me, with me is everything. What happens when we turn not just Adam and Eve, our first parents, representatives, but every one of us. What is the overall result of that? The plague story is a microcosm for, in that purpose. Not that it didn't happen, but is a microcosm to say, what happens when the hardening of heart for the thirst for power and control becomes so consuming, what does that look like for a people, for a world? First, distance from God, and then ever-increasing loss, pain, hurt, sickness, destruction, the earth groaning and breaking, the reversal of God's creation to ultimately death in the end. That's the story. And so from one perspective, we need to see the plagues from that. This is what always happens. It's what's happening in our world today, if you look into certain places. Some of us, we feel it more acutely in our own lives, our own families, this narrative. The continual, sometimes generational turn 
away from the goodness of God, the presence of God, the words of God, the hope of life in him to our own way has led to this. That's not the end of the story. The end of the story is God will not give up on his people, his creation. God will always provide a way. God will always draw out his people for any who would come to him, turn to him, soften their hearts, open their ears, begin to follow, not even knowing, not even having all the answers, but begin to follow, to walk into his light out of the darkness, who would receive his word and begin to trust, begin to hope, begin to wonder, begin to repent, to turn, to confess, to say, I agree, God, or help, God. I believe, God. Help my unbelief, God. For all who would come and turn, who all would trust just enough to stand under the blood of the Lamb, there is salvation. There is deliverance. There is freedom. Even for Pharaoh. Even for Egypt. And for the Israelite. For the young and for the old. For all who would turn. This is God's story. This is the gospel. And we respond to it by entering into it and seeing it not just as history, but as theological power. The ten, the ten plagues from the 10,000 foot vantage point reveal this story of what always happens. That God created a perfect world. Sin, one definition of sin is the hardening of heart against the goodness of God has devastated the perfect design. The plagues become the, the signs of the reversal of creation acutely on display from the waters of the sea to the sky above to every creeping thing rather than order, chaos, rather than dominion, subjection for God's people under the creation, rather than abundance, ruin, rather than light, darkness, rather than fruitfulness, barrenness, and rather than life, death. When things get bad enough, we tend to cry out, God, help. God, I was wrong. God, save. Or God, I relent. And sometimes, just like Pharaoh, when things alleviate and get a little better, we go right back to our own ways and thirst for power and control. And this becomes a wavering story of sometimes our life or a broader community or a people or even a world. From one perspective, God will bring judgment and justice and righteousness. From one perspective, he will. That's his promise, for, especially for those who are oppressed, abused, enslaved. Let me tell you, the oppressed and abused and enslaved read this story very differently than the privileged and those in power. For some, they ask, how could God do this? But others are asking, how could God wait so long to do this? It is a matter of perspective and how we enter it. At the very end of the story, in our Greek scriptures, the book of Revelation, we see a parallel. I want to tie this together to the broad, big story that we see. It's very intentional. 
the vision of John. Whether John was clearly aware as he was writing this, I think some clearly with the, 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 there we go, the Hebrew scriptures, the first story. But I think much was even lost on him as he recounted this vision of what he saw at the end days, at the last times, of what always will happen. And there's these, these uh, seven seals and seven trumpets that happen. And this isn't a whole message. Hang in there. Chapter 6 of Revelation 8 and 9 and 11, if you're interested. Some, some love Revelation too much. <laughs> Others don't know what to do with it and won't touch it with a 10-foot pole. And we probably need to be somewhere in between. <laughs> But with these seals, this is the end times picture of, kind of fulfilling this, what always happens. What's the end of the story as humanity continues to harden against God relentlessly? There will be justice and judgment. And as these seals are torn, you see the plagues. You see the story recounted. Agriculture ruined. The earth groaning, broken, upended. Livestock tormented. Plagues falling upon people. The sun darkened. The sky falling. With the first trumpet blast, hail comes down mixed with blood. With more and more blasts, there are, is darkness, locusts, plagues, and the sea is turned to blood, and all that is green is devastated. See, when we just pick up our Bible and just read portions of it, we go, okay, that is crazy. When we start to see the literary beauty and genius of this story and see the big story, it starts to become illuminating to our eyes of what, of what primary message is being proclaimed. At the end of the story, in Revelation, the lamb is not slain. The lamb is on the throne. At the end of the plague narrative, the lamb is slain, the blood is shed, that all under that doorway, in that house, are saved, spared, life instead of death. That picture gets put forward when Jesus hangs upon the cross, blood on his head and down his sides as the lamb of God with arms open to the whole world for all who would turn to him to be in his house under his rule and reign, will be saved. And at the end of the story, when the trumpets blast and the seals are torn, no, that won't happen literally, it's figurative, but when the earth act, probably actually is groaning and we feel it, at the end of the story, the lamb does not need to be slain again. The lamb is on the throne. And here's the picture in Revelation 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. Hear this, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were all wearing white robes, were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Hear this, every peoples, every language, every tongue, every skin color, distinct, still distinct in God's eyes, but one, unified, together, proclaiming and worshiping the Lamb. That is our vision, church, that one. Jesus taught us to pray it. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. Those two must come together. 
And this is the picture. And it goes on. Revelation, the whole story ends with this. Revelation 22, verse 3. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. And his servants will serve him. And they will see his face. And his name will be upon their foreheads. That's a call back to Aaron and the priesthood who put the name of God on the diadem, on their foreheads. And there will be no more night, no more darkness, and they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever with him. From one perspective, God will bring judgment and justice against all evil and oppression and abuse and deliverance for the enslaved. He will provide a way. It's his way. It's his story, his timing, and his methods we often wrestle with. But will we trust him? Will our hearts be softened unto him, not hardened as Pharaoh's? Will we begin and begin again to trust and to hope for all who follow? Above all, these plagues reveal a God who is in control of all things, all creation. He spoke and it was. From chaos he made order. From barrenness he brings forth abundance. He can reverse his creation at a word. He can suspend the natural course of his creation or upend it if he wants. Hear this. God will move the heavens and the earth to rescue his people. I feel like I just buried the lead. God will move the heavens and the earth to rescue his people. His sovereignty and power seen clearly and seen more in the ending of plagues, ending of sufferings as in the upending of creation. When he saves, he recreates. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Ironically, at the final deliverance, at the parting of the sea, when God gathers up the waters as hearkening back to creation, when he gathered up the waters and moved them at his will, clear authority over them, and delivers his people, right? He parts the sea. We like to sing songs about that. And yes, I realize and recognize it is sometimes too much to enter into it as an individual because God is doing this on a cosmic level. Hold both as he moves the waters, because he will move heaven and earth to save his people. Did God kill the Egyptians or simply allow nature to return and do what was natural? And there's consequences to that. No simple answers to this story. Let's finish with this. Just some parallels to the ministry of Jesus, which I've already been highlighting But as we have to see, traced in the story, Jesus enters in with clear authority and sovereignty over the waters. He turns water not to blood but to wine for joy and celebration. He walks upon the waters. He calms the storm with a word or a wave or a look. He brings forth abundance from a few pieces of bread and fish. Not scarcity, not ruin in agriculture or in harvest, but plenty. 
abundance. He heals the sick. Specifically at times, those with leprous skin diseases, he touches and brings healing and health. He raises the dead. He is sovereign and in control of creation and bringing it to its proper order. Ironically, he allows the natural man-made way of things to crash down upon him leading to his death. What always happens when men thirsty for power and control are confronted by a God who says, the race is to the bottom, not to the top. For all who want to be great will be least and will serve. And for those that reject and resist, this is what always happens. They kill the Son of God. But that's not the end of the story. And God, with one final act of upending creation, or could we say, bringing creation back into right order, that death is not in his world, but life. And Jesus rises again for the hope of the world. John says in 3.19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. This is the verdict. This is what happens on this Memorial Day as we remember all Americans who laid down their lives for others, for generations of sisters and brothers, daughters and sons who they would never know, and we remember. May we also remember the bigger story that makes that kind of sacrifice have meaning to a greater degree. The one who laid down his life for all, for life, for freedom, for deliverance, and for hope. At the moment of Jesus' death on the cross, darkness came upon the, the earth and the earth shook. We see what happens, what always happens. May we respond today. I'll invite us to respond as we did last week with hearts that are soft to hear the word of God, the voice of God, the story of God, and to seek to walk into it Maybe you feel your faith is this much today. Maybe it's been growing and you feel it's as strong as it's ever been. That doesn't matter. The amount of our faith doesn't matter. It's the object of our faith that matters. As we come, and I invite you to communion to remember the broken lamb, the shed blood of the lamb. We don't stand under it. We receive him within. For all who receive, he gives the right to become sons and daughters of God in his household. If you're moving toward him at all, move toward him today in that way. May we sing and express our praises to him as God's people always have. I'll read this again. Team, would you come and be prepared to lead us? Back to Exodus 15 where I began. This is what God's people did when they recognized his deliverance, his mighty power, for them, not knowing what was to come, and that wasn't an easy journey. We'll get there. Life is going to be tough. But God's redemption and salvation is worth singing about. And that's what his people did. We've always been a singing people. They responded in song and worshiped. Exodus 15, 11, declaring, Who among the gods is like you, Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, 
awesome in glory, working wonders. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy abode, your holy dwelling. And Psalm 105, which reflects this story, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known among the nations what he has done, sing to him, church, sing praise to him, tell of his wonderful acts, glory in his holy name, and let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord, to Yahweh, and his strength, and seek his face always. May we remember the lamb, not the one that is slain any longer, but the lamb upon the throne. Will you lead us? Respond as you are ready, church.